to all of you. Um, my name is Joel Kibazo, and uh, thank you for sort of coming to what I think promises to be an interesting session. And I know you've had quite a few over the last two days. And um, I was just thinking that one of the challenges of attending an event such as this is that at the end of the three days, there's a sort of the sheer weight of solid information, ideas, research findings that is coming at you from all sorts of different angles. So um, it can be difficult, but uh, it's not always easy to digest it all, but I'm afraid we're going to actually add to your dilemma in this session as we consider the case uh, for industrial revolution or agricultural revolution. There are, of course, those who think and see things, uh, see both topics as two sides of the same coin, and I need not say that um, there are those who are also as fervent who believe that one or the other should uh, come first. But our panel tonight, from, from our panel tonight, we shall hear both, both from the academic research side, but also those dealing with some of these issues in um, two regions, uh, in Africa and in uh, South Asia. We've got quite a lot to get through, and I'm sure there'll be many questions that um, will arise following the comments of the distinguished panel that we have here. So without further ado, I'll introduce the panel. Um, we're going to start off with uh, Profe uh, Professor Mark Rosenzweig, who is the Frank Altschul Professor of International Economics at Yale uh, University. His key areas of interest are causes and consequences of economic development and international migration. He has, as you would expect, numerous top journal publications and received the National Institute of Health Research Service Award and a Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson Dissertation Fellowship amongst his uh, many honors. But um, he also tells me that uh, one particular honor he's proud of is that he is an alumni of uh, this august institution. So um, that's what to add. Um, now, John Sutton is, uh, is not only sort of an alumni, I mean, but at the very least he's been here for 30 years and he is professor of economics here at the London School of Economics. He, he, he was just telling me that some still consider him to be the new boy. So I don't know what that <laughs> actually means, being new at, at 30 years, after 30 years of service. But he's written widely on the, uh, uh, in areas of microeconomic theory and industrial organization. He has been a consultant to the World Bank and has served as a member of the group of economic advisors to the President of the European Union and several other policy and research positions. Um, well, and then the, the, we've got, then we have a Professor Ernest Ayete, who is the country director, uh, Ayete Dien, who is the, the country director of IGC in, in Ghana, and is Professor of Economics and Vice Chancellor of the University of Ghana. He has served at the Brookings Institution <coughs> in Washington and at the Institute of Statistical, Social, and Economic Research of the, uni of the University of Ghana. Um, besides holding several policy assignments, he has also taught at various universities, including the School of, Afri of uh, Oriental African Studies here in London, Yale, and Cornell. Dr. Ijaz Nabi there, is the country director for the IGC in Pakistan 
and the Dean of Social Sciences at the, the whole University of Management Sciences. He's an economist and has served the World Bank in various capacities over the last 20 years. He's authored several books, policy papers, and research papers on industrial development and, firm, uh, and firms' incentives. And last but by no means at least is uh, Paul Romer, who is a Henry Kaufman Visiting Professor at New York University and a Senior Fellow in the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. He has taught at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and at other universities. He is a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and has received the Reckenton Wald Prize in Economics. He has numerous publications, as I'm sure you'd expect, and uh, the, the, the contrast between the economics of objects and the economics of ideas is a thread that, that runs throughout his work. You may want to ask him about that. I'm still baffled. <laughs> right, um, without um, further ado, as I said, um, uh, each of the panelists will speak for no more than 10 minutes before you can raise issues or question them. And so I now call on Professor Rosenzweig to start us off by outlining the sort of the principal policy issues and main challenges for research in, uh, in his particular area. Thank you. The, I was asked to, to raise all the issues, and uh, the natural first one is whether this title is, an, is the appropriate question. Uh, it, the title implies that it's a mutually exclusive choice between agricultural investment or industrial investment to foster growth. And uh, I think, in fact, that it's not obvious. The first research question is whether, in fact, agricultural development and industrial development uh, are substitutes or they're, in fact, complements. That, uh, in fact, one could achieve both agricultural development and industrial development at all. So one, one issue is clearly that, that one would have to get straight. But of course, the overarching question is we're interested in having an economy develop to reduce poverty and uh, hunger and, uh, and have human capital increase, uh, increase incomes in a country. And, and the question is how best to do that, uh, not choosing between two particular kinds of, uh, of investments. So let me first start with um, one of the rationales that people have used for developing agriculture as a priority for development. And that's the idea that is simply that, well, the world's poor live in rural areas. Most of them are engaged in agricultural production. And so it's obvious that if we want to uplift the incomes of the poorest of the poor in the world, we need to invest in agriculture because that's where the poor are, are engaged. And that, I think, statement is, uh, is, is false. And it's false because it just presumes, uh, it takes a very static view and assumes that, that people are sort of stuck in this uh, occupation and, and enterprise. It takes both where people live and what they are doing currently as a, as a given, something that, that doesn't change. And I think that that's wrong, and history shows that it's, that it's clearly wrong. So that argument for investing in agriculture, I think, is, is not one would want to use. There's a more sophisticated model for the primacy of agricultural development that, that goes back a, a long way. And, uh, and it's one in which agricultural development leads to a more productive agriculture and eventually to industrialization. So it, it, it actually presupposes complementarity between the two. It, it basically says that agricultural development is necessary for industrial uh, development. And the basic idea is a closed economy model. 
So you increase agricultural productivity, and because of the inelasticity of, of price for agricultural goods, it actually leads to incomes of farmers going down as output increases, and it naturally leads to pressures for people to exit from agriculture. It increases the demand uh, for, uh, from the surplus that occurred from the, uh, the increased productivity, increase in demand for non-agricultural goods, and that generates both a labor force and a demand domestically for industrialization to, to take place. And that was the sort of classic uh, view of the relationship between ag agricultural development and industrial uh, development. Now, clearly, this view is relevant for the world. It would be impossible to have industrialization, to have workers not engaged in farming if there weren't sufficient productivity so that you know, very few people could be producing the food that all the other industrial workers could consume while they're producing these manufactured goods. So it's surely right for the, for the world, but it may not be right for any particular country. And one reason for that is uh, global trade, that this, is, this was a sort of closed economy view. And an alternative view is that in a globalized world with trade, including trade and agricultural goods, agricultural development should just follow the standard prescription, should be encouraged only in countries or areas that have a comparative advantage in producing agricultural goods, just like any other commodity in the, in the world. It, so uh, the model underpin underpinning this prescription is if agricultural goods are traded internationally, then if a country increases its agricultural productivity, it raises the incomes of rural workers, there's no decline in, in prices, and uh, there's not necessarily an exit from agriculture. But something else is going on in these models, which is that there's another factor of production, namely capital, that could be used in agriculture or industry. And what will happen with agricultural development is it will presumably raise the wages of workers. Again, there's no decline in the, in the price because it's a small country model. <coughs> and in fact, industrialization will not occur in areas in which there's high agricultural productivity because those are places where wages are high and capital is seeking places where wages are generally low, everything else the same. So in this model, in fact, agricultural development and uh, industrialization at a local level are indeed competing for something which is, which is capital. So now, the alternative is, well, you can think about developing industry, and then the question would be, if you develop industry, what does that do to the agricultural sector? Again, there's some competition, but on the other hand, there might be complementarity. So we want to know, does industrialization come at the expense of agricultural development? Again, asking the question, is it either or? Now, there was an old surplus labor view that industrialization could easily occur because you could remove workers from agriculture who had essentially zero marginal product, and there would be no decline in agricultural output. I think the microempirical evidence is such that the underpinnings for that idea are actually not, not don't have much weight. And, based on efficiency wages and compensatory labor supply on the part of other people in the, in the rural economy. However, there's newer work which basically suggests that it's possible that by removing workers who go into a newly productive industrial sector, agricultural productivity could actually rise. And that comes about from the advantages of scale economies. So some of the research questions are, which of these models is correct? Is the closed economy model, the open economy model, the competition, or the complementarity? Uh, does industrialization <coughs> arise at the expense of agricultural productivity? And ultimately, for any given country, given its natural resources, including the human capital of workers and other infrastructure and other things, all of which are, of course, endogenous in the long run as well, which policy is most effective in raising wages and, and incomes? 
Now, I have some, just as a start, I have some preliminary suggested uh, results from India that answered some of these questions. India is an interesting case, because India is a case where clearly there was an, an augmentation in agricultural productivity. The Green Revolution, everyone knows that. Rural areas benefited substantially from the Green Revolution. There was definitely a reduction in poverty. You can look at that as the rise in agricultural wage rates, the poorest of the poor are people who are landless and make their living just from working in agriculture, and their wages rose in real, real terms. But on the other hand, in India, with this increase in agricultural productivity, we did not see a massive exodus from agriculture to anywhere else. So this graph shows you, and I could have made it more dramatic by having the left-hand scale go from zero to 100%. These are the migration rates from the US Census of rural to urban migration for men aged 15 to 24, which is a prime group of people you'd expect to be the most mobile in the economy. 60 to 71, that decade is more or less prior to the Green Revolution, and the rate was like 2.5% uh, left, their, left the, the rural area for urban areas permanently. It rose, it, you know, more than doubled in 7182, which is the first decade of the Green Revolution. That sounds good, but that's a very low rate of out-migration. And then it fell back to even the low pre-Green Revolution rates in the, in the 80s, and then has increased slightly post-91, which is the reform period in India. So, so we do not see the exit from, uh, from agriculture or rural areas in India that the model, uh, the, the standard model, would, would suggest. And in fact, we don't see many signs of industrialization in India as well, which some of our other speakers will, will talk about in more, more detail. So in rural areas, in fact, industry, when we look across rural areas, which have different paces of agricultural productivity increases, we in fact see that industrialization, at least in rural areas, was negatively related to agricultural development. And it's very clear in the, in the data. If we look at the proportion of men aged 25 to 44 in rural areas whose primary activity is non-agricultural wage work, non-agricultural wage work, those bars are the proportion of the, of the population in 82, uh, the, the light colored bar and the green colored bar is the, the, the 71 period. So we, we're looking at almost 30 years of change. On the bottom axis, we have a quintile distribution of rates of growth in agricultural productivity, where the lowest quintile is the lowest rate of growth in India over that 30-year period, and the highest quintile is as, as defined. Right? So what you can see very clearly is it's in the lowest quintile agricultural growth areas where you had the, uh, the biggest rise in non-agricultural employment, and the smallest rise was essentially in the high agricultural growth areas, suggesting that in that case, uh, the, the, the two were, were substitutes, just like in the, in the open economy model. You can look at it more dramatically by asking what proportion of the villages had at least one factory. Again, looking across the different areas ranked by their agricultural productivity change over the 30 years. And you can see very clearly that factories were coming in to the low agricultural productivity areas as opposed to the ones that, that had uh, large agricultural productivity growth. You can look at the change in, in both, because the blue are the 71 and the, the 99 is what you see uh, almost 30 years later. Okay, so the, these facts about Indian development suggest very, are consistent more with the open uh, economy view of how the world works and what we then see in India is this large rural sector. It's diversified in terms of uh, non-agricultural work, uh, much more so than in 71, but not necessarily in industrial work, 
or enterprises, and most people in the rural sector, where delivery of public goods, for example, is, is very inefficient. And the last thing I want to talk about, though, is what would happen if there were industrialization in India to productivity in the agricultural sector. And here, the first fact to confront is it really looks like there are <coughs> vastly too many people working in agriculture at too small a scale. This is the distribution of far owned land holdings in India. Okay? And what that distribution tells us, so on the x-axis there, is you have the size in acres, or the intervals in acres of farm size. Okay? And the left hand is the proportion of the, the cumulative proportion of the population in the intervals. And what it says, if, if you can read the graph easily, is that 80% of farms are less than two acres in size. 80%, this is from the, the Indian census of 2001. Very small. Now, there are some who have argued that small farms are more productive. And in some metric, they are. If you look at output per acre, they do look more productive. But output per acre is not the way that we look at how uh, true productivity, you want to know profits per acre. Profits per acre take into account the resource costs that are being used. And what one sees there, with some relatively new data, is that clearly profit per acre on small farms is lower than profit per acre on larger farms. This graph from a survey of 7,000 farms in 2008, which computes profits by taking into account all of the resource costs, including family labor and supervision costs, as well as the costs of rental costs of equipment and other things. And it shows clearly on the, the bottom axis is we have acreage of farms. Okay? You can see clearly, descriptively, that there is a, a strong association between profits per acre and the size of landholdings. Now, everyone knows this could be phony because it could be that large farms are in more productive areas, small farms are in less productive areas. So we really want to know what the causal relationship is. And without going into the details, there are ways that you can get at, using panel data, what happens when a given farmer inherits more land. So you take the same farmer in the same area, and suddenly his scale of production goes up. Okay? And you can estimate from that what is the effect of an increase in scale in terms of owned land holdings on profits. And this is the graph, a non-parametric graph, of the treatment effect of increasing land size at different land sizes. Okay? And what it shows is that from land sizes from great, little greater than 0 to 20, the effect of increasing land size on profits per acre is always positive. It peaks at you know, 4 acres, which is like in the top 5% of farms in, in India. But it's clearly always positive. It seems clear, scale economies are quite uh, important. And what you see is that what's going on is that labor per acre is, declines rapidly with farm scale. And the reason that is occurring is because of mechanization. That the larger farms make use of mechanical means of, of production. This graph shows, again, by owned acreage, the fraction of farmers who own a tractor or a mechanized plow or a mechanized thresher. And it clearly rises with farm scale. So what these data suggest is that farms in India are way too small, that there would be enormous gains from consolidation of land holdings, which means that if industrialization occurred, drawing out laborers from the agricultural sector, which is of relatively low productivity, and that was accompanied by these people selling their land, leading to land consolidation, there could be, in fact, 
a, a significant increase in rural agricultural productivity as well as the wage gains that might accrue in the, in the industrial sector. Now, I'm not suggesting this is true for all countries or even that this is necessarily true for India. This is just to set out there what some of the uh, issues are about the relationship between industrialization and agricultural productivity. So let me stop there. Thank you very much. Professor Sutton is going to sort of uh, give us his perspective on that uh, particular discourse. Right, guys, um, I've got some really good news for you because uh, <laughs> if you weren't concentrating real good over the past 10 minutes, don't worry because I'm going to say the same thing again. <laughs> uh, I ran into this guy on the other side of the Atlantic uh, just a few days ago and we discovered we were both talking in this session, so of course we said, uh, what are you meant to be doing? And he said, well, I'm supposed to do the agriculture bit, and you're supposed to do the industry bit. So we said, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? And we discovered we were going to say the same thing. <laughs> However, I'll be saying it in a different way, because I'm taking it from the same point of departure, but looking at it from the point of view of what happens in industry. The point of departure is the notion that's been floating around that we really ought to be concentrating on agriculture, because that's where the people are. To an economist, that's a fallacy, because Growth and development means that the proportion of people in agriculture is going to fall. It's just an outcome. It happens universally. So let's look at it from an industry standpoint. What's the economics 101 of this? Well, it's very simple. It's not move people out of agriculture into industry. It's much more interesting than that. I just want to give you one number. The number that I want you to remember is four. Okay? Now I'm going to tell you where four comes from. I've been doing some work that I was reporting on yesterday in Ethiopia in tandem with uh, Mons Soderbaum. And Mons has been gathering some really interesting numbers on firms, industrial firms in Ethiopia. This is where the four is going to come from. You move people out of agriculture, move them into industry. The key question is going to be where in industry? What size company? Suppose you look at companies in Ethiopia, most of the industrial companies are very small companies employing two, three, or four people. Now I'm going to look at the contrast between one of those companies and a mid-sized company employing 40 to 50 people. The difference in value added per person is a factor of 10. Some of it is due to capital and mechanization, but, um, you know, now I'm going to reveal I'm one of those economists. You know, you have to look at the marginal productivity or the marginal revenue productivity, but no politician ever got elected by saying, let's move people into high marginal productivity activities. Okay? It's high wage jobs we talk about. So the best indicator is the wage. The wage is four times higher in the mid-sized company than the little company. <coughs> so the thing is not actually the economics 101 level. It's not about moving people out of agriculture into industry. It's moving people out of low-wage occupations into high-wage occupations, where their productivity is greater. And that really is the key. What we need is more of these mid-sized companies that can pay people an international-level reasonable wage. And that basically relies on the build-up of the capabilities of companies. It's not the capital stock as such. It is that these companies know how to turn people's human attributes into skills that can be sold on the market and command a reasonable wage. That's what it's all about. That's the big picture. 
And so if you look at this question from that point of view, the question is, could you get stuck in a trap? 30 years ago, people used to talk about the Lewis model of development. The people moved from agriculture into industry, but they were still getting something they used to call the Valrasian wage, and nothing happened for them. But that's not what happens in practice. What happens is that they are sucked into these good jobs in mid-sized companies. They develop skills which are scarce in their local labor market, and their wage reflects that. So what happens is you get this very large increase in the wage. So this movement from small-scale agriculture into mid-sized manufacturing is a real lever. That's the conveyor belt onto which you want to get people. So what does that leave us with in agriculture? Well, very much the point at which Mark just finished. It's all a question of scale and activities within agriculture. Look at the growth, the complaints about agribusiness. In Ethiopia, the government is very ambivalent about the development of large-scale activities and the development of agribusiness. They have two views on the question, but this is really good. They have really good businesses built on their stellar success in cut flowers, now moving over into uh, market gardening, vegetables for export, and so on. And these are high-wage sectors. So within agriculture, there are some areas like that. Moreover, across agriculture as a whole, the leverage is not very good until you shift the scale. So the outcome you want in development is that people will move into these high-value-added activities. And as this happens, the scale of the individual agricultural activity will go up and, in tandem with mechanization, will raise, agricult raise agricultural wages. By the time a company, country moves up, to the midpoint in the international league table in terms of real wage rates, agricultural populations have shrunk dramatically from their currently very high level in sub-Saharan African countries. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Sutton. And now um, we sort of uh, take a, a look you had the sort of the academic framework and have a look at uh, what it really looks like in policy terms from two professors. Um, one will look at South Asia and that is uh, Professor Ijaz Nabi. So, one, two. <coughs> Thank you. Since I'm going to pretty much say what, uh, <laughs> what <laughs> Professor Rosenweig said, <laughs> Professor Sutton said, and at seven o'clock there's a limit to how often one can repeat the same thing, so I better say it very quickly. Is there a number we should keep in mind? <laughs> <laughs> we had four before. So. But what I am going to say is that uh, one way to look at the problem, which is quite obvious when you look at South Asia and its recent growth performance, one way is to pose the question in terms of uh, firm capabilities. In other words, what, what, will, what will make South Asian growth more sustainable is when people will move out of low productivity, low wage jobs to higher productivity, higher wage jobs, which will happen in the manufacturing sector. And if you can, uh, if you can increase firm capabilities, uh, well, you will see that. I mean, that's one way to, uh, to, to, to put it. And a lot of the growth agenda of the IGC conference has been focused on that. The other way is to say that there is something going on in the broader economic framework that is not permitting this to happen. Even if you did find out 
what is it that the firms should become capable in if they are facing exchange rates that render them uncompetitive in the international markets, if they are faced with uh, uh, a, a tax policy structure which is extremely uh, uh, unlevel, in other words, they are the manufacturing sector is the only sector that actually pays tax. If they are faced with labor policies in which if you uh, put your money in setting up a firm, you will be held accountable and will have to pay a tax if you put your money into services, uh, nobody will come and collect the tax from you. If you look at uh, an energy policy framework, uh, whether it is electricity consumption or pricing of electricity or pricing of gas, it, it's the residential sector in South Asia that gets preferential treatment, both in terms of availability as well as prices compared to the manufacturing firms. And if at the same time, you've got a public investment program that is focused at improving the quality of service to passenger traffic versus freight traffic, if you're looking at this whole framework of policy, then you've got to be a very stoic uh, manufacturer to continue to improve your capabilities when you've got uh, these uh, issues to deal with. Um, basically, uh, a, this is where the work that uh, a colleague of mine at the bank and I started doing a few years ago uh, a, this is where we concluded. Uh, we started off being very optimistic about South Asia because we looked at the South Asian growth experience in the, in the 90s and then right up to 2006, and it was very impressive. Country after country in South Asia was growing at very impressive rates. Uh, Bangladesh, uh, historically high growth rate. In 2006, Bangladesh was almost growing at 7%. Bhutan, very high growth rate. India, of course, uh, at phenomenal at 9%. Uh, Pakistan, after the doldrums of the 90s, was also registered growth rate of 7.5% in 2006, and so did Sri Lanka. And all of these countries were reflecting these very high growth rates, despite what, would, what were considered to be classical sort of uh, uh, growth traps. Uh, uh, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka had huge fiscal deficits. Um, Maldives and Bhutan were classic enclave economies dependent on one economic activity. Uh, Bangladesh had very, very high sort of corruption uh, 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 indicators, and so on and so forth. In other contexts, you would have said, these indicators will take these economies down, but South Asia was doing very well. Not only were the growth outcomes good, but also the poverty outcomes were very impressive. Again, country after country has seen a very impressive reduction in poverty incidents, almost 10 percentage points over an eight to nine year period. Uh, even Nepal did well despite a relatively low growth, uh, growth rate because of the remittances. So that took us to the question of if, what is it that's driving South Asia's growth? And again, the, the single largest factor uh, that hits you when you look at uh, the aggregate numbers in South Asia is the scale and size of remittances that come into South Asia in all the countries. It dominates foreign direct investment. It dominates over, uh, uh, foreign assistance. Uh, so what, what has remittance done in, in those economies? Well, it has had a very good impact on poverty. But at the same time, it has enabled these countries to sustain very high trade deficits because the exchange rate has not been a problem. Uh, and so th that makes for a, for a classic uh, Dutch disease problem where it's the manufacturing sector that adjusts 
when you've got a large amount of uh, a foreign exchange coming in um, and, and, and imports are relatively cheap. So the sustainability issue uh, became obvious when you started to look at what role remittances were playing in these economies. And then once you create a consumption-led economy, once you have consumption-led uh, boom in the economy, sustained by remittances, the, uh, the policymaker it gets trapped in, 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 in that framework because you've got very strong lobbies which then persist in, in, in lobbying for policies which are pro-consumption uh, rather than pro-investment. And that, in turn, unless you correct for it, through other fiscal measures, such as a sensible a public infrastructure program, public-private infrastructure program, a sensible tax policy regime, uh, investment in education, etc. unless you correct for that bias through these measures, you've got a very powerful policy framework which is going to prevent uh, a, a manufacturing firms to acquire the capabilities they need to acquire in order to generate the kind of employment that South Asia will need for sustained growth. Just one quick word on, uh, on, uh, on internal security issue because that's a big problem in all of the South Asian countries and has been uh, until very recently and uh, coming from Pakistan, it's inevitable that one focuses on that. Uh, when you look at what internal insecurity does to economic, uh, broad economic variables, we know that it's negatively correlated with FDI. It's negatively correlated with export performance, but it is positively correlated with remittances because family members working outside send more money back home than in, in situations of, uh, of internal uh, insecurity uh, for a variety of reasons. And if you compound that, with larger inflows of foreign assistance, you are again creating the Dutch disease problem that has, uh, 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 that has made uh, sustainability of growth uh, in South Asia uh, questionable. I just want to stop. Okay, thank you. And now, Dr. Ayete. Uh, thank you very much. I, I decided to respond to the question by asking myself, if I was an African leader, what would I do with this question? Uh, the first thing I would do is uh, probably think about the fact that uh, these are questions that African leaders had to ask themselves and answer for about 30 years from the 1960s into the 1980s. That's the kind of question they face all the time. And they answer that question differently. Look at the history of Africa and look at you see what Tanzania did uh, in terms of agriculture. And then you can see what Ghana did in terms of uh, import substitution industrialization. So clearly, there's a history uh, in Africa of governments trying to do either of these two. The last 20 years have been spent ignoring uh, the question, uh, spent more or less muddling through with various other options that didn't have anything directly to do with industrial revolution or agricultural revolution. When you look at the experiences that I mentioned, Tanzania, Ghana, indeed many <coughs> other African countries, one that stands clear, the failure of industrialization and also of agricultural development came from the same, for the, for the same reasons. Uh, we talk about skills being absent for industrialization, and you find the same absence of skills for agricultural development. 
talk about capital being absent. Indeed, uh, for Ghana, industrialization was stopped largely by the absence of capital uh, for the import of teaching process. Similar things apply to uh, Tanzania when it comes to investment in agriculture. So we've learned that. We also learned that the absence of strong market institutions was very, very important in the failure of these two attempts. And you find that in almost every African country. So with this experience, what would I do as an African leader? Uh, I'll ask myself, what are the problems we are trying to solve today? Are they the same as the problems of 30 years ago, 50 years ago? Clearly, uh, very much the same. We want to achieve faster growth. We want to reduce uh, the level of poverty in the country. We want to reduce inequality. And we believe we must achieve a higher rate of employment than before. So these issues are critical. And as a politician, I would have to answer that question. How do we achieve all of this? Now, do you solve that problem by simply opting for industrialization? Or do you say, I'm going to go for agricultural development? It's not an issue of choice, in my view. The choice is more or less made for you by the nature of the economy that you run. It's the choice is made for you by the fact that you're part of an, a, a global uh, trading system. So every African country knows very well that the more productive it becomes in agriculture, and as production goes up, prices crash. It's always happened, whether it's in cocoa or tea or coffee. And so the sensible thing to do is not to focus too much on any one agricultural crop. What you do is diversify. And that's what has been the effort directed at in the last 20 years, diversification. Clearly, uh, there's a strong need for many of these countries to generate higher wages for people in all sectors, whether in manufacturing or in construction or in agriculture. I agree strongly with what uh, both Mark and uh, John said about uh, moving from low-wage activity to higher-wage activity. Yes, that's what needs to be done. But how? What has not been done in Africa, in my view, has been the choice of sectors that can deliver that, where governments working with the private sector actively identify critical areas where they can make the most difference and therefore pump more and more capital into that. We've seen it happen in some parts of Asia, so there's no reason why it can't happen in Africa. There's the possibility, indeed, for many of these governments to decide we want to focus on uh, cotton, we want to focus on cocoa, we want to focus on tea. But not just simply a matter of enhancing the productivity of tea production, but ensuring that the value of tea goes up by diversifying or having a value chain system that replaces a lot of the uh, things that are done manually, making tea production much more modern than it has been before. That's a choice that the governments in uh, East Africa would have to make. The same thing applies to coffee, the same thing applies to cocoa. That has not been done yet. So then you think about how do I link agriculture to uh, industrial development? Clearly, the decision to go into industry is determined by the fact that African countries are part of the global system. And there has never been a case where any country in that region has tried to trade itself out of poverty on the back of agriculture. And so, strongly tied agriculture to industrial development, in my view, becomes a sensible thing to do. You do it by focusing, again, in the value chain where the ties between agriculture and industry can be strongest. So agribusiness is important. And that going into things like food processing, for example, becomes important. It allows you to be a part of the growing world and at the same time deal with the issues of 
unemployment and poverty back home. It hasn't been done. It's not simple to do. But governments have to be much more selective. Governments, I, I don't really buy the argument that uh, you don't need to pay much attention to agriculture simply because that's where the people are. Those people vote, and they vote regularly. And their vote these days is very, very important. So making sure that they are moving from low-wage agriculture into high-wage agriculture is a sensible thing to do for any politician in Africa. You do it by being more selective. You do it by investing in, by investing in infrastructure, by investing in the market institutions, by investing in whatever skills they can have. That's how the higher wages are going to come about. It's not simply a matter of, well, we choose between agriculture and industrialization. The choice is a lot more confusing. It means much more interlinkage between the two sectors. That's the way to go. Having a more diversified African economy cannot be avoided in this century. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Ayeti. And now, um, really to sort of uh, pull a thread through all that, to the extent that he can, is Professor Roma, who outlined sort of these, some, you know, some of uh, what's happened and see how sure. we can draw it all together. The, the usual knock on economists is that we can't agree on anything, but the problem in this panel is, is that we keep saying the same thing over and over again, and I, I anticipated that was going to be, be a problem. So drawing a thread through this is, is, is the easiest assignment I've ever had. So because I assume that what I wanted to say would already have been said, I brought a joke. Uh, the, the star tenor is sick, and the understudy is pulled up on stage to sing the aria. The understudy sings it, and then everyone applauds and says, encore, encore. So the understudy sings it again, and they still say, encore, encore. Another time, the other understudy finally says, please, I didn't sing it that well. And someone in the audience says, yes, and we'll make you keep singing it until you get it right. <laughs> so here with an encore performance of uh, uh, let people move, uh, let me just reiterate what uh, has been said uh, uh, several times already. Um, productivity increases in agriculture are going to involve increases in three key ratios. The ratio of land to labor, the ratio of capital to labor, and the ratio of, of skill to labor. And so productivity advance and development in agriculture is crucially tied to this process of letting people leave the agricultural sector. Now, this, I think, is a problem which is broader than just agriculture. I think it's characteristic of uh, any resource or minerals-based uh, strategy. And, and what it suggests is that if a nation fails, for some of the reasons that uh, we, we've talked about, fails to create employment opportunities for low-skilled for low workers, it, it faces a very, a very dangerous kind of uh, condition. You can get growth in GDP per capita with, without increases in, in employment, and I want to try and argue that this could be extremely costly from a, uh, the perspective of broader, uh, broader development. Um, I, I think this is actually so important that in many low-income countries, I think we should probably stop using GDP per capita as an indicator of government success and shift instead to a measure of the fraction of the working age population that's employed in the formal sector. And I'm going to come back at the end and say why I think that fraction is, is so important and should be our measure of, of uh, success. Now, what are signs of failure? Well, signs of failure, for example, this reliance on remittances 
you can't get people employed in a formal sector job here, so you send them off someplace, break up the family to, to do it. Uh, it could also, another sign of failure is a reliance on transfer payments, as in, in South Africa, which now spends 4% of GDP on transfers instead of on investments that could uh, put, put people, uh, or at least let them uh, go, to, go to work. So there are real traps that you can, you can get into if a, if a country doesn't manage this right. So one, way, one fact that I always keep in mind when I think about this issue of let it, letting people move is this report from the Gallup organization that 700 million people say that right now they'd be willing to permanently move to another country. So it, it's not the case that people aren't, uh, aren't willing to move. And that, that number is probably an, an underestimate as well. So what is it that, that keeps people from moving into industry, into, into jobs? I, I want to argue that there's actually an a intentional policy in many countries that are designed to keep people in rural areas. So the kind of failure of movement out of the rural areas in, into cities is, is not just uh, a conceptual mistake on the part of politicians, but it's an intentional policy because they're afraid of the mismanaged city. They're afraid of slums, they're afraid of riots, and so the politicians want to keep people in, in rural areas and f frustrate this natural uh, development of, of local formal sector employment. And as part of that, send them overseas if, uh, if necessary as well. Now to, to think about what's going on here, I, I want to suggest a different characterization scheme than the one of agriculture, manufacturing services, or industry and services. Um, Think about first activities that involve transforming the physical characteristics of goods. If I can use a restaurant metaphor, <coughs> this is either cooking the food or serving it, moving its, changing its uh, physical location or its uh, physical characteristics. Now we know that a, a, an important complement to transforming uh, physical characteristics of goods is coming up with new technologies or new recipes and that this is a driver of, of, of long-run growth. But if you think of those two activities and you look at trends over time, you realize they're missing something really, you know, really enormous that's, that's going on in the economy. And uh, a good way that I, I find to re remind people of this is to take this, this unique characteristic of ideas, this fact that it's shareable, uh, non-rival, that we want to uh, trade any new recipe or use it with many other people, and, and capture this with this old saying that if you, if you give someone a fish, you feed them for a day, but if you teach someone to fish, you destroy another aquatic ecosystem. <laughs> so, so there's something else besides discovering nets and trawlers here or going out and doing the fishing. It's coming up with rules that coordinate all of our activity. And if the rules don't keep up or these coordinating functions about who's doing what don't keep up with the changing world, you're going to get you're going to get bad uh, bad outcomes. Now, the shareability of knowledge is driving these very powerful trends in uh, in the world. One is globalization, trade of of goods and services, uh, with now billions of people trading rather than just the the local community. We have communications networks that let us trade information directly with people all over the world. But critically, we also uh, have urbanized. We all want to live in places where there's lots of other people that we can uh, trade, trade ideas with and have higher standards of living and uh, more, more consumption. But as we start to interact with more and more people, as our networks of interaction get bigger, 
we need more rules. So the rules aren't just a reaction to new technologies like, oh, you develop nets and trawlers, you've got to have limits on the catch of the fish. We need rules to manage how we work with each other when there's hundreds of us or millions or billions of us all interacting together. And what I think is going on in these countries that are trying to keep people out of cities is a basic incapacity at the national level or the government level to run a city with a much more dense and effective set of formal rules that make sure that people can cooperate and live together without stepping on each other's toes. What's a metaphor for this that's kind of like the trawler and the fishery? Well, think about email. When academics invented email, they came up with some rules that were partly built into the protocol and partly built into behavior about what you do with email, and the rules were basically just be nice, don't do bad things. And nothing in the protocol identified who was doing what. There was no enforcement, no monitoring. Well, that worked fine when it was a dozen academics writing to each other, but when it's billions of people trading information over the Internet through email, there's all kinds of bad side effects that come from that. So we need more complicated rules as our networks of interaction get denser. In cities, the obvious manifestation of this is crime. And preventing crime is not just a matter of passing laws or copying the form of crime prevention in existing countries. One of the sad things, if you read the Gallup survey of the 700 million people who want to leave, one of the primary reasons why people want to leave is that they're afraid of the police where they live. So enforcing systems of rules that prevent crime and don't intimidate and frighten people is not a trivial matter. And we have to ask, how can governments get better at enforcing rules at that kind of level? Now, let me give you one optimistic vision on this, which is that there's a kind of globalization that allows even trade in systems of how you enforce rules. So it isn't just trade in goods or services. The best illustration of this, I know, is that the Chinese government realized that its aviation system had a very high accident rate compared to the best in the world. And this is in the lead-up to the Olympic Games. And Boeing also saw this high accident rate and was worried about its ability to keep selling airplanes in China. So Boeing and the FAA from the United States went in and rewrote the entire rulebook in China for civil aviation, trained all the pilots, and very quickly reduced the accident rate in Chinese civil aviation from a very high level to one of the best in the world right now. So there's more potential to transfer some of these systems about rules instead of just taking it as a given that a country can say, oh, we don't do cities. That's not how we roll. I think we've got to say if you don't do cities, you've got to learn because it's critical to the development process here. But let me give you one just kind of complication in this story. If you look at what's involved in reducing fatality rates in civil aviation, it's partly having those rules, partly having enforcement systems, but it's partly changing norms. You have to change the norms of the pilots and the controllers and the service people about what's right and what's wrong and create what they call this culture of compliance. It's not just that there are rules and you'll get punished if you don't follow them, but it's the right thing to do to follow the rules. So we know a little bit about copying the formal rules. We don't know nearly as much about how you engender the right norms. 
And you know, you can think about these norms at all kinds of levels. Think about queuing here in England versus uh, in France. Think about uh, jaywalking in Zurich versus uh, versus New York. In Zurich, people will scold you if you jaywalk when there's not a car in sight. In New York, they'll scold you if you get in their way when they're trying to jaywalk. So, um, or think about just a more graphic, but you won't forget it, example, just public, public sanitation. Uh, we don't have police enforcement to stop people from defecating in public in most, most parts of the world, because we have norms that say that's just something you shouldn't do. But in the transition to urbanization uh, in places like India, instilling those norms and getting to that new equilibrium is a, is a big issue. So why is, why is formal sector employment so important in this development process? Employment already has important contributions to the norms that people, uh, people take in when they work with others around them. And formal sector employment in, involves precisely the following of rules, the working well in a well-socialized way with uh, large numbers of people, and that the formal sector employment is, is critical to the development of norms which actually help us all interact at the very high densities that are now that are now so productive. So, so I hope as we think about these issues, we can recast this question about, you know, why is it that politicians are keeping people out of cities and think much harder about how do we engender the right kind of norms to make cities viable. And there's a clear kind of complementarity here between the rules, the norms, the employment, and the development process. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we have some time for sort of uh, questions, comments. Um, so if you sort of do, you know, you might want to direct it to any of the professors here or, you know, to the group as a whole. You know, do sort of uh, please indicate. Um, if we just sort of start off with a gentleman over there. Yes. Yeah. Thanks very much. Jonathan Glenny from the Overseas Development Institute. Thank from the Overseas Development Institute, Jonathan Glenny. Right. Thank you very much for those really fascinating presentations. They were incredibly helpful. What I wanted to uh, share was some experiences. I've just been in Colombia recently. I was very interested by uh, by Professor Roma's comment that governments are trying to keep people out of cities. Um, that may well be true in Colombia. I'm fairly certain that's the opposite. Colombia is one of the countries where there's the biggest displacement problem, one of the biggest displacement problems in the world. And I wanted to put a different perspective on the way that um, the panel is talking about um, industrialization. Um, I understand that you're looking at it from a very historical perspective, but you talk about you know, millions of people moving over time, and that is quite sensible, and I understand that. But let's look at the specific people involved. We were working with people who were being pushed off their land. Why do they want to keep hold of their land? Um, and yes, of course, they would, they would appreciate better wages. But I would say there's something there to do with security, something there to do with risk. When you lose, and, and, and clearly, if you haven't got land, if you're a wage laborer, then I think a lot more of your arguments apply. But if you do have land, to lose your land and to go and work in a city, if you then lose that job, for instance, and we all know that, that cities are, you know, um, many cities are massive slums. Um, if you then lose that job, you've lost everything. You've, uh, land is to do with culture as well. It's to do with family. It's to do with political voice and power. Once you've lost that, 
uh, you, you really have lost everything. So I would argue that, it, I mean, I, I understand the kind of broad historical sweeps that the, the panel are making, but in terms of public policy, people don't want to move from their land because they're aware of the risks of that. And, and I, I'm worried that the, the, the kind of uh, arguments that the panel are making will push politicians to be even more fervent. Um, my experience is that politicians want to move people from their land because they want to increase agricultural productivity, they want to increase mining, et cetera, et cetera. And I would, I would worry that um, the human rights of people to actually decide to stay on their land, despite the difficulties, and despite slower, perhaps slower wage growth and slower productivity, uh, would be undermined. All right, thank you very much uh, for, for, for that comment. I think we'll take uh, the gentleman at, right at the back, and then, you know, and then uh, if any of you need to sort of comment on that, we'll, we'll just Well, uh, my, uh, my name is Ashan Iqbal. I'm a member of parliament from Pakistan. My only uh, observation is, uh, should we still look at industrial revolution and agricultural revolution in a very historical, traditional, compartmentalized manner? Because now what we are seeing that, you know, there is an another hybrid emerging uh, where we first had agro-based industry and now we are having industrial applications into agriculture and how bio-agriculture is going to redefine the whole landscape. So there is this, you know, the third area also where uh, the two are going to, I think, have very serious uh, impact on each other. And I think just as we focus on politics and economy through political economy discipline, there is now a need to understand the interface of agriculture and industrialization. For example, look at ethanol. Uh, when it emerged as an industrial uh, option, it changed the whole pattern of crop cultivation and it uh, seriously affected the commodity markets you know, also. So, uh, so we may have this very interesting area where in, uh, you know, uh, the interface of agriculture and industry may offer many great challenges as well as opportunities. Uh, the other point uh, I wanted to make as a politician that I'm not very sure how much politicians can control people from migrating uh, from rural areas to urban centers because you cannot even control migration across countries now, it is becoming a major problem because people will just go, this is one of the uh, impacts of the globalization. I would tend to you know, build on that. I think uh, what we underestimate, uh, still in the rural economies or in rural societies, there is this power of joint family system which has a much more social security uh, kind of social safety net and people tend to enjoy the protection of that b b larger uh, family social safety net, or they have this emotional belonging to land which is part of their identity, and they would like to hold on to it as much uh, as they uh, can. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'm not uh, sure that politicians have the ability or the clout that they can stop people from migrating from rural areas to urban areas, because in our country, actually, it is becoming a major problem that you know, the uh, migration is putting great pressure on urban centers and there is now a need to reinvent the rural enterprise, uh, which is uh, basically uh, you know, uh, the need to create greater opportunities uh, in the rural markets to keep people uh, in the rural areas. Thank you.
Thank you very much. We'll take sort of one more point here before we uh, return to the panel. Yes, gentlemen there, yes. Thank you very much. Um, I must say that um, all the presentations were very fascinating and inspiring. I just want to um, maybe add to the two contributions by the two earlier um, people that spoke before me. I think um, it's really interesting that um, we're looking at um, more or less like rural, urban, you know, migration and increasing wage. But something else that we want to look into is the non-economic or non-financial utility that is pr provided by, you know, living in the rural areas, they rightly pointed out. There's some, there's some utility that being in such a context or such an environment provides for the inhabitants of those places. And in some cases, you may not be able to put a financial value to it. For example, living in the rural area, maybe in a developing country, you may, not, you may be able to have access to things like you know, natural vegetation, you know, a very good um, environment, not polluted, and things like that. So those are non-economic um, utility that could be derived from you know, being there. And sometimes not only all about financial resource, financial income that you can, when you want to consider the wage, you know, when you consider all these benefits that come from being in this kind of environment, you can see that sometimes it may even be higher than a person that so-called as a higher wage, so to speak. So these are perspectives I want to look into, that we need to potentially look into and you know, consider when we're looking at um, you know, um, the impact of um, moving from one occupation to another and things like that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, what I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll give the panel a, a sort of chance to respond to uh, some of them have been comments and are sort of questions. And um, you know, we had the three sort of the example from Colombia, three the sort of uh, land, and also the gentleman, the member of parliament from Pakistan about um, the sort of you know the industrial versus agriculture, and and really what the role of politicians can do, if anything. You know, he says that really they don't have the power. And then of course the last gentleman on the um, sort of the non-financial benefits, shall we say, or advantages, obviously, if you stay in a particular area. I don't know who would, uh, you know, Professor Andrew like Wade, do you start. want to sort of start us off? And so there are two of the issues that, that were raised. One is, uh, to what extent, how is it that, that governments are operationalizing the charge that, that was said that uh, they're keeping people in rural areas? It's not an enforcement issue, although China actually has laws that, that do that. But rather, it's the bias in expenditures. So for example, we can, if we examine uh, the, the particular programs of governments, and India's the, the one I know best, so I'm an expert on it, we see that there are a massive number of policies that basically are subsidizing people to stay in rural areas. One enormous example of that is a recent uh, program called the Rural, uh, rural Work Wage Program which is basically providing government-subsidized jobs for people in rural areas, right? Well, that's, that's artificially maintaining people in, in rural employment schemes. Just put my mind for, for a second. There's uh, programs uh, that heavily subsidize farmers in terms of uh, subsidies to inputs like electricity and fertilizers. There's uh, programs designed to help the marginal farmer. You hear about the marginal farmer in India all the time. 
Well, in my view, it's the marginal farmer that's precisely the person that, from an efficiency and development point of view, should be leaving agriculture, yet there are programs designed to keep him there, that, that most of the programs are aimed at what is the welfare in agriculture of the, of the marginal farmer. So that's, in, that's how the government is doing it. Uh, now, whether it's purposely to keep people out of urban areas or from, from um, good hearts but bad minds is, is not, not clear, but the effect of it is to keep people in rural areas, to provide subsidies to stay. So that, that, that's one thing. The second issue that's been raised is about the, uh, the benefits uh, of being in, in rural areas. Now, no one is saying, you know, that it, the, the giving the romantic view is how wonderful it is to work in agriculture, you know, the bucolic life. It's one of the worst occupations one can think of. And if anyone ever does farming, they know full well that it's not, not, not the kind of occupation that people would like for their children necessarily. In, in some aspects of agriculture. But there's real issues about security. And I think that's a really in, important point. My co-author, uh, Andrew Foster from Brown University and I are working on this issue about scale in agriculture. And we think we've convinced ourselves, this is sort of the data that I'm showing you, that larger scale is better in agriculture. So we always do the experiment in our, in our minds. Well, so why don't we go down and buy up all these small holdings, you know, just like venture capitalists do, right? Because what we're saying is the, the sum of these small things is much greater in value than these, these little parts. So why don't we just go down to India with, our, with capital that we could raise and buy out farmers? And then we thought, well, would, would farmers, even at the market value, would they take the deal? And we began to think about these issues, and we said, well, what would they do with the money? What is a more secure asset in India than land? And we couldn't think of anything. I mean, is there a bond that they could buy that they could really trust? Is, you know, is, is it going to indemnify themselves against inflation? So that is, is one thing. That's partly the security issue, that land is, is, is good for collateral, and whatever thing they transform land is wouldn't have the same. The other is social networks in India. They're really well developed. And my co-author, Kaivan Munchi, and I actually have a paper, Why is Migration So Low in India?, where we indict as one of the reasons that there are these well-developed networks that provide security for families, whereby if someone left sort of anonymously the rural sector to go to the urban areas, they would lose that, that security, these well-developed village and, and subcast level security groups. And so now what we thought is that therefore without large economic gains, okay, there have to be pretty large for them to give up this, this security. or one policy prescription, of course, is if the government provided more security in general for the population, relying on these other rural institutions that are well-developed to do it uh, are, are, is going to be a barrier. Or if the gains to urbanization and industrialization are, are great, they can move the system to urban areas. That is, there's nothing particularly rural about the systems that have been developed. It's just that the scale of them that are in place make it difficult for sort of individuals to exit from it. But if they could move the whole system, then if there was a massive movement of people, uh, then it might be a different uh, issue where they could bring these, these social networks with them. We know a lot of international migration is, is along network lines, so, so it's a possibility. So I think it's absolutely right that the issue of what's the alternative security and uh, a life of uncertainty in this new urban environment for individuals is, is a barrier. But I bet for sure that when the wage gains are, are there and palpable and sustainable, that there will be large migration in any case. Okay. Um, your, uh, Professor Roman, did you want to sort of add? Yeah. Uh, let, let me just make my point. 
in reference to what, what Mark was just saying, I think the deal <coughs> you should offer is buy a big enough tract of land to build a Shenzhen type city and then say, give us your farm. You can come work in a city which is safe where you can get jobs where your kids can go to school. And then I think you'd get a lot of takers. If you look at this 700 million people that I was talking about, and you look, where do they want to go? Overwhelmingly, they want to move to New York or Toronto. So, you know, it, it's not as though there are people who are getting forced en masse off of the land. There, there, there clearly may be cases of people who are forced, but there's no need to force anybody to leave. There's an enormous pool of people who would love to move to a city that's, that's well run, like Shenzhen or Toronto. And uh, the, the question is, what, what's, what's holding back the supply of those, those kinds of opportunities for them? Now, the one other point, which is, is a slightly different point, uh, is I would interpret this way. Is there something different about agriculture right now? Uh, because I think one way to interpret what you were saying is, is that agriculture is a high-tech sector in the economy. And that's true. Just as So it's not that agriculture is traditional, industrial is, is high-tech. Agriculture is very high-tech and so is industry. I actually think that's always been true, though. And so what's, you know, what's pivotal about agriculture is not whether it's high or low tech, but it's whether or not it provides jobs for low-skilled workers. And uh, it, it tends not to. And that's the fundamental uh, thing that's always been true and that we have to uh, confront. Okay, please. Pasayete, and then. I guess I want to react briefly to the issue of uh, whether government spending is designed to keep people in rural areas or not. Uh, in uh, Africa, I see, or at least I've seen in the last uh, 15 years, a significant increase in government spending in rural areas. But I don't think it was designed to simply keep people there. Uh, there are two reasons, uh, one economic and then the other political. The economic reason is that if you don't, these young men and women are going to migrate to the cities and going to overwhelm you uh, simply because you haven't created jobs for them. So the cost of uh, maintaining them in cities where there are no jobs uh, really is much, much higher than the cost of uh, keeping the villages well uh, managed with uh, drinking water, with good health, good education. So that's the economic reason for that. Uh, in the, the, the second economic reason is also that uh, uh, a lot of investment does not go into rural Africa, largely because of the absence of infrastructure. So I've seen major infrastructure projects for rural areas emerge in electricity, in water, and so on, uh, and roads. So there are good reasons. You know, it's not simply keeping them there. You know. Uh, and the political reason is basically that's where the votes are. <laughs> so so if, if you don't do it, they're going to vote you out of power anyway. So so by combining these political and economic reasons, there's a strong justification. And if we want to see a much more diversified Africa in the coming years, uh, it means you must get private capital going into rural Africa. And private capital will only go if the public investment has been made already in the roads, uh, in energy, etc. So that, that's the really uh, why it's being done. Thank you, Professor Ijaz. Yeah, I just, uh, <clears throat> you know, it helps to think about the broader economy-wide policy framework if you want to explain the evolving structure of the economy. And we see in South Asia, you've got uh, a declining share of agriculture in GDP, a virtually stagnant share of manufacturing in GDP, and a rising share of service in GDP. And I. And what, what I needed to explain to myself was, why is this happening? And, and the economy-wide policy framework 
helped understand that. But then, and, 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 and one conclusion one, one arrived at was that, well, if the manufacturing sector, which has the potential for creating the largest number of, of high productivity, high wage jobs, if it is not being allowed to do its proper role in the economy as it did in East Asia, uh, where are the jobs going to come from? Uh, but then there is a second question, which is, uh, even if people move out, even if the share of agriculture declines in GDP, there's still 50 to 60 to 70 percent of the people living in agriculture. You still need to do what, what, is, what is necessary to increase agriculture productivity. We know that in South Asia, uh, agricultural product, agriculture yields are half of what they should be uh, compared to similar uh, environments elsewhere. So there is, there is a lot that needs to be done at the sectoral level in order to raise productivity in all of these three sectors. I know there's been a lot of infatuation with the services sector uh, going by India's example. But if you look at uh, services in South Asia, India is the only country which has splintered services in a way that there is a modern services component, which is world class, which is uh, IT and computer related services. But look at the employment intensity of that uh, segment. It's very, very low. So, so if having a macroeconomic policy framework which is resulting in a segment of the economy acquiring a larger share in GDP, which is not creating the kinds of jobs that you need to create, is what makes one wonder about the sustainability of growth uh, in South Asia. All right, thank you very much. Um, we are sort of uh, running out of time, but I think there's just sort of, i tell you what I'll do, okay. I'll just take, there's two points, and uh, I ho I'll hope the panel will agree with me that they'll answer those points in case, you, if, if they're sort of, if they're specific to them. I think there's a gentleman here very quickly and hopefully very short, and the lady over there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, a very uh, elucidative uh, talk. My name is Sandeep Bansal. Uh, my question is for you, Professor Nabi. You had mentioned that um, a lot of the growth we are seeing in South Asia is because of foreign remittances. And I'm hoping that you'll elaborate on the nature of these remittances and comment that if they're not translating into increased productivity and organic growth, how sustainable are they? Well, Thank you. Okay. That, that, that was the point. Yeah. The, the <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought Professor Rogo dealt with that, but uh, la la lady, sorry, behind, just behind you over there. This is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Very good. Um, I was just wondering if you could comment. I was a little surprised that there was no discussion of land reform in terms of a shift from agricultural to industrial development, and also if you can sort of comment on on having degrees of formality and degrees of migration from rural to urban areas as well. Okay, all right. Um, the, I don't know, Ijad, did you want to sort of uh, take the issue on? Well, the question, when you look at uh, what it will take for agricultural productivity to increase, there are two principal issues there. One is uh, managing water. Uh, in, in a lot of South Asia, water is going to become a very serious issue. I mean, the floods of Pakistan uh, seem to paint a very different picture for the, from, the, from the actual problem. The actual problem is going to be water scarcity and not too much water as, as we are seeing uh, here. And so managing water, using water efficiently has to be the top uh, priority uh, in, in, in dealing with agriculture. And the second issue is land. Uh, 
certainly land reform in, in parts of uh, South Asia where uh, land concentration is, is, is very high. Uh, but, uh, but, it, 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 but the question of land has more to do with the way land is, the rules currently allow the use of land. And Sri Lanka is a very good example of that. Uh, what use you can put your land to is governed by a very uh, rigid uh, set of rules which does not permit farmers to experiment with new crops, cropping patterns, etc. So the question of land is going to be very important, uh, but I think the dominant issue is going forward in South Asian agriculture is going to be management of water. Okay, uh, there's a point. Just, just a brief point. The, 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 you know, land reform is obviously important, but it's so context-specific that it's, re it's really difficult to make a generality uh, from that. I mean, there are countries in which the government owns all the land and allocates the land to people. That's yeah. going to have a very different effect on people's willingness to, to leave rural areas. There are countries like India where more or less people have all the rights in land to sell, buy, inherit, and et cetera. Where, and that's why I use India as an example, because there are no artificial barriers to people selling the land and getting out, essentially. Uh, at, a, at a fair price, yet nobody sells land, partly related to some of the issues that, that we said. But, it, but in some other countries, it's, it's, it's a key to uh, sort of un, unwrapping the potential productivity of a, of a country. But, it's, but it really depends on the country. I just want to um, thank you very, very much, because I just want to sort of give the panelists an opportunity to sort of if they have sort of um, final sort of uh, comments in terms of... Uh, you know, wrap up on some of the issues that you've heard. Does anybody have any particular comments? Maybe I know Professor R Rama. Uh, yeah. So, So first, let, let me be clear where we agree and then where we might disagree. Yeah. If if a government does not have the internal capacity to have a big city with millions of people with low crime then the second best cost-minimizing strategy might actually be to keep them in low-density rural areas. But my point is that the ability to have a multi-million person city with low crime is kind of a solved problem, just like having a safe civil aviation uh, uh, system, and that that ability is more transferable than we think. And we shouldn't just write off the possibility of safe cities in, uh, in these countries and settle for the, the second best solution. We should really meet this demand people have to live in some place like, uh, uh, like, like Toronto. And on the infrastructure issue, if you measure just simple things like miles of copper per capita, if you have a city that's 10 times bigger, you need about half as much copper per, uh, per capita. So on many dimensions, the infrastructure is much cheaper to provide if you just let them move into these very dense uh, urban areas. And what's, what's so expensive about trying to provide Af uh, infrastructure in Africa is you're trying to do it over these huge expanses of land. It's just much more expensive. So, so to, and then to, to finally conclude, if you think of these three big activities of transforming physical objects, inventing, and then coordinating. Coordinating is the service sector, and it's where a lot of growth is going to come, but it's more skill intensive and more intensive in formal education. And so the, the, the big opportunity to get this dynamic going is not in services or coordination, but in this transformational activity like manufacturing, which is most efficient in urban areas. Thank you. Um, does anybody uh, wanted to add? Yeah, let, let me yeah, just uh, uh, <laughs> I, no, I, 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 uh, I understand fully the point that Paul is making. Uh, in my view, 
it's uh, a lot more difficult to create jobs in uh, cities than it is to provide rural water. It's a lot more difficult. And, and, and uh, let's, let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. A large part of the investment that African governments make in rural areas is donor-funded. So, and donors are willing to pay for rural electrification, rural water, rural roads, <coughs> than they are ready to pay for creation of formal sector jobs in cities in Africa. So for, for this reason, and several other reasons, uh, it's a lot more convenient, mm -hmm. and, and the logic of it is much more obvious to any uh, policymaker. Mm -hmm. you know, creating jobs has been the most difficult thing in the last 50 years. Uh, if you take, take any typical African country, uh, all the growth that we've seen in the last 20 years of reforms uh, has not been accompanied by any significant uh, job creation, urban job creation, or modern jobs in any way. You know? So they see how difficult it is. It, it, it calls for a response from the private sector, which is not coming for several different reasons. But digging a well, doing a road, fairly easy to do. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I was uh, slightly worried that we were going to get a group of economists who completely <laughs> agree. So uh, at least we've managed to achieve the, the fact that they've gone back to form. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> which, uh, at least for me, uh, means that uh, all is well in the world of economics. Um, I think we've had a sort of uh, a, a interesting uh, sort of uh, evening expose. So will you please just sort of join me in thanking what's been around? <laughs>